House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. David Lean Shapiro is here. <laughs> Lean yeah. Cuisine Shapiro. Oh, okay. Is that my new name? Yeah, no, I just thought I'd throw that in there, but Yeah. Um well what's what's going on with you? All this karate <laughs> stuff. You got your own channel. Looks like you're doing really well, eh? What? It's going. Yeah. It's going. It's not too bad. Yeah, you're becoming a star, you see. Yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've, you've already made me a star, Al. <laughs> yeah, but this is, you're, you're like, you're like uh, Howard Stern's Whack Pack. You'll be doing your own yeah. thing. You'll be out there, you know, doing this stuff. That's good. Yeah. That's yeah. good. You know, start charging for it, you know. And it's all because of Al Warren. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say that when you're in court and being arrested. Yeah, exactly. Like that. <laughs> it was all Al's fault. Yeah, I mean, you know, blame it, blame it on that one. Blame it on me. <laughs> well, yeah, let's see. Okay, not many shows left in the year. Um, yeah. We are doing sci-fi today, mm. kind of sci-fi, I guess. It's for the for us old guys. It's we just say sci-fi. Yeah. For the young guys, they say all sorts. They start saying words, and I think they're swearing. <laughs> That's so often. Yeah, it's like what? 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 What's that? What? What's that? You know, especially when they were getting into the hard sci-fi. Then I thought that was pornography. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just like, wow, it's not? And splatter punk and, oh, my God. And for me, punk was rock music. But mm. Anyway. So, Cyberpunk. Yeah, that is that it? Cyber, yes. slaughter, Cyber, slaughter, yeah. slaughter, it's yeah. chimney. Yeah. I'm getting too old, you know. <laughs> Hey, so let's 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 get the guy in here. Let's figure out what we're doing here. So, uh, the book we're going to be talking about is Inertia. I knew a girl named that once, and our guest <laughs> is Mark Everglade. So, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Alan David. Well, Mark, 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 Mark. So, how do you classify your writing? Because, like, um, like with someone like like me, and and a lot of um, let's say fifty plus kind of guys. Sci-fi and fantasy are just two kind of their their own realm, sort of. And then then comes along all of these new types of science fiction, you know, cyberpunk and uh, and so what what is all of that, and what are you doing? Well, that's an excellent question. And you know, there's always the average um, in the U.S. Uh, as far as the number of books that are written a year and put on Amazon is about four hundred thousand. That includes fiction, nonfiction, children's books, etc. And as we see a proliferation of media, uh, we also find that people are trying to define themselves and be original by coming up with subgenres of subgenres of subgenres. This tremendous amount of media that's being created requires more specific, um, you know, designations for it. And so we come up with all the genres that you were discussing: solar punk, cyberpunk, splatterpunk, steampunk, etc. And to some degree. We're really looking at separating uh, the classic science fiction novels from what is more what was called at the time in the 80s new science fiction. That is to say, 
What I try to do in my writing and what cyberpunk authors try to do is differentiate ourselves from the big space opera writing, the grand uh, golden age of sci-fi of Heinlein and Clark and um, Asimov and all those um, in the sense that we take the conversation away from space, Al, and we take it and we put it usually more often than not in uh, the near future and in uh, urban environments so that we can look at uh, the relationship between social issues and technology. So when I think of the greatest um, science fiction novels of all time, they really share something in common. I think of things like, oh, you think of Animal Farm in 1984 and We, and you think of Brave New World, and you think of um, you know all these classics, Fahrenheit, Bradbury. Um, and they really had something in common, is that they were making grand social statements. This was a social science fiction. So as a sociologist myself, by, um, by trade, profession, and education, uh, basically, I tried to intersect uh, technology that sci-fi is obsessed with with uh, social science issues. And in that merger, I kind of basically come out of that, and that's where the work kind of lies. We can call it whatever we want, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. Not really, but I uh, – <laughs> um, wow. Um, so um, – how do you how do you let's say let's put it this way when you go to write something like this how do you start out like what are, what are the rules like where are you going with this story um because you talk about we you, you take it away from space so what's what's kind of the way you go although i focus uh, although my books um do are set in space that's not the focus the focus is really on the um basic conflict in society uh, between the haves and the have-nots. Um, as a sociologist, I'm very interested in studying race, class, and gender, and uh, how the social institutions relate to these things. And uh, when I approach you know, writing a novel, for instance, I approach it by looking at the basic dialectical conflict. What is the conflict, the social conflict, that's going to be at the heart of it? And so in my books like Hemispheres and Inertia, it's you know really about uh, the – you have basically a title-locked planet, and half of it is always dark, and half of it is always daytime. And so, and basically, the, 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 ones, the people who do not have access to light and the people who have access to light, there's a lot of conflict between them. You know, one side is very rich in resources, and, and one side is impoverished. And so I, I look at a basic kind of dichotomy there, a social conflict that I can set at the heart of, the, of you know, whatever society I'm creating. And when you base a book around a realistic conflict like that, uh, it becomes not only you know more interesting and realistic and more suspenseful, but it also becomes more of a testament to uh, our current social issues. You know, in modern day society, we're having more and more polarization in our country between liberals and conservatives and different groups, and uh, that polar and and that conflict is really, you know, leading over into politics and everyday conversation and the way that the younger generations are identifying themselves and the world that they can imagine that is possible. And so I kind of like to look at all of that and, you know, basing it around a central conflict. But wouldn't you be sort of um, – don't you have to be sort of careful on what kind of conflict and how you resolve it and how you – use it throughout the book or or even if you're writing a series because as you say and you know rightfully uh, there's so much the polarization and fighting and people on each other's you know bad list right now like the last few years it's been pretty intense so when you have such a 
thing going on, do, do, do you have to be, do you find yourself trying to be a little bit more careful on how relatable it is? Absolutely. And that's why, although cyberpunk is it's not often set in space, setting it in space let me, and, and dealing with other species and whatnot, let me play out that conflict in a less controversial way. I also think that um, when you can kind of hide things like racial conflict by looking at relationships to, between alien species, that you can, you know, make people's eyes open a little bit more in a way that they're not really um, perhaps used to. Um, to avoid some of this conflict, in inertia, the, it's really centered around the idea of global warming. And selling this book to people in person at book fairs and the Miami Book Fair, you really uh, get a lot of um, people who want to bring up all sorts of arguments and debates over whether global warming is real, uh, people who hate the book before they even you know, pick it up just because it's about global warming. By setting it in space, I kind of avoid their preconceived notions of this. Because at the very least, we can all agree that global warming in the planet that I created in my story is an existent phenomenon. And so we have a safe place to explore the issue that avoids people's biases towards it. But, you know, when you <laughs> when you kind of do that, um, how do you make it so that in your planet they get along? And they don't always get along. So in, um, in, in the book Inertia, you have basically a young geophysicist, Ash, who is – um, study, she's studying uh, geophysics and terraforming, studying the planet's ecology um, and all this stuff. And she basically comes upon some classified data, Al. And this data um, suggests that there are institutions like the government and different major corporations and factions that are profiting off the planet's destruction. And so um, she basically ends up knowing too much, and then her life is put at risk. And so that puts um, basically, you know, the idea of having like a young hacker who, uh, you know, coordinates uh, efforts with other hackers in order to uh, gain access to restricted information to promote social change. You know, that's as classic cyberpunk as you can get. Uh, it reminds me of Bruce Bethke's uh, first novel about teenage hackers in 1980, uh, which was just called Cyberpunk, which is where we got the word from. Um, but, yeah, so, there, so you know, you have to develop both your factions and conflict, but also look at – your allies, and in this case, Ash's ally is her father, Severum, uh, who has a, you know a lot of government connections and all. He used to be a mercenary and kind of became disillusioned with that life and disillusioned with what he was fighting for. And um, the problem is that she has to rely on him, but he doesn't know she exists. And so here's you know a father meeting a daughter, you know, at the age of like 20 after. Um, who didn't know they existed, and so that it's really kind of like that's another layer of dynamic. So when you have conflict between the factions of a planet, when you have a conflict, uh, uh, an idea filled with conflict, like global warming, and then you have character conflict uh, as far as the relationships that character has with other characters, even their allies, well, then to me that's what kind of creates that uh, suspenseful page turner. Well, think. I'm wondering how you feel cyberpunk, I guess, has changed since like the, uh, the 1980s uh, when it was introduced, I believe, by William Gibson with Neuromancer. Um, you know, with the, with the state of modern computing and the internet, uh, you know, ha, has there been a lot of change in in the creation of these type of stories with the uh, uh, with, with society becoming more technological? Oh, absolutely, that's an excellent question. There has been a, a major change in the '80s. Um, you know, cyberpunk was very much coming out of the people who were writing it. Uh, they grew up reading uh, Kurt Vonnegut, a lot of satire, um, Thomas Pynchon. 
in the postmodernist. Uh, they came out of the Vietnam War era, and they saw a lot of, you know, hippies and others protest in the Vietnam War. They were, you know, very rebellious in spirit. And in the 80s, the cyberpunk authors, when they were talking about words like avatar, virtual reality, these were words that they had to create, cyberspace. These were all created by Gibson and Stevenson, the metaverse. So they were creating the language for things, for technologies that were just barely emerging. And there was this idea that technology, it was a pretty negative uh, dystopian view of technology. And it was a, it reflected a lot of the fear of the era. And you had the basic protagonist being an anti-hero, somebody who was just trying to survive and not necessarily, you know, morally good, so to speak. So this all shifts, right? So um, by the time we hit the mid-90s, you have post-cyberpunk emerge. And it's this, and the genre becomes more optimistic. Uh, technology is no longer seen as a double – it's seen more as a double-edged sword. This is a tool that can be used for goodness or for, you know, horror. It can be used for either. And out of this, you have this idea of – a, a, a true protagonist or hero starts to emerge in the 90s that we didn't see that much in the 80s in cyberpunk. Nowhere is this more uh, predominant, perhaps, than Keanu Reeves when he's playing Neo in The Matrix. He is the chosen one, and he's a really good guy. You know, I mean, at the first, of course, at the start of The Matrix, of the first one, he's a hacker and he's, you know, kind of a pariah and outcast in society. But over time, you see him emerge as a chosen one. That wouldn't have happened in a classic 80s cyberpunk. He would have pretty much been more like Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> well, so now when you're putting together this, do you actually have um, a meaning in mind or a, a subtext? So you're starting with the story first and putting the characters into it. Is that kind of how your 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 book gets put together? Uh, you know what? My first novel, Hemispheres, um, yes, I started with the story with, um, you know, the characters and the story. And I figured if I made characters with realistic motivations, that the plot would naturally follow. Um, for Inertia, I took a different approach and I really looked at, well, what kind of social statements do I want to make now? Um, you know, first and foremost, what kind of statements do I want to make? What will the plot be? How can I organize then the characters around the plot? The reason for this change is that the plot became so huge that it was very difficult to contain within even a couple of books. So I'm writing a third. And it became very difficult to even track uh, what was going on. It was like this huge logic puzzle. How can I put together a plot with this many elements? And I almost lost control of it at a variety of points, rewrote it numerous times um, over and over and over. And um, but, but yeah. Yes, in, in essence, eventually it came out and was well-received. So your characters, how do you create your characters? Do you have um, – is it based on people you know, people you've seen, something um, in the water? Like where, where, does, where, does you, where do you create your characters from? Isn't that the question? You know, where does creativity come from? Um, you know, can we just generate something out of thin air, an idea with no kind of underpinning at all? I think that all of our experiences in life feed into our unconscious and that whether we're consciously or, or unconsciously emulating things, that we're always emulating something. And, uh, you know, and on some level, we're always gathering all of our experiences together and promulgating them or manifesting them through the characters we create. Like when you dream, every character in your dream is you as the dreamer. Well, when you write, it's the same thing. Every character in, that you write in some way is some part of, yourself, or at least the experiences you've had. 
but no, I would never consciously base a character off of anyone I knew. Um, but sure, I'm sure there's, you know, elements that kind of bleed into it, into the creative process that you're not really aware of. Well, I'm wondering, you know, when you're, when you're writing, um, dialogue, do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear your characters? Is that how you experience them? Or is, is there some other way that, um, that you that you create uh, these characters. No, dialogue is is so difficult because it's so difficult to get people to sound different from yourself and different from one another. Um, you know, one of the things I do is give each character sort of a, a buzzword or a certain slang or cant that they use that's different than other characters. Um, some characters are going to use um, they're going to take the G off of their words. They're going to speak more casually or more urban or use more slang and profanity or you know be more orthoethosic or be more eloquent in their speech or more poetic. Uh, putting that all together and getting distinctive character voices is very difficult. So I asked advice um, from Jeff Vandermeer, actually. I interviewed Jeff, who lives nearby. And uh, Jeff Vandermeer, uh, he was the author of Annihilation, which became the uh, movie with Natalie Portman. And he's, you know, written, you know, dozens of books. And so, um, and I, you know, I asked him, how do you write character? Because he does it so well. And Jeff said that he pretends like he's the character all day long when he's writing. He takes the character's voice. When he speaks to his family, he speaks in that character's voice. And he basically role plays that character for weeks at a time, you know, and and two, he has perfected his or her voice. And so I don't think I can go quite that far, especially, you know, having a day job. (laughs) There's a lot of role uh, characters I would not want to role play, especially in dystopian lit. But, um, but with that being said, yeah, I think that's some good advice. Well, I think I think you do that now, don't you, Dave? Yes, <laughs> I just role play all through the day. It's Ask my wife; <laughs> I do all sorts of crazy voices. Yeah, yeah. he's constantly yeah. role playing. He's, uh... <laughs> well, so it's, it's it's interesting the the whole idea. But to, for you, you personally, um, what makes a good book? Hmm. So I believe that most plots are following the hero's tale, um, the hero's story, where you have, you know, a character, who, a protagonist who he's down on, he or she is down on their luck, and they meet a wise person, like in Star Wars, when Luke meets Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then, you know, goes through a journey where they learn stuff through another master, Yoga, Yoda, and, you know, that plot, we've seen it play out so many times. Times, you know, when the Hobbit uh, meets um, Gandalf, you see the same plot over and over. I believe most plots have been ha- were already told uh, after ancient Greece. You know, I think the ancient Greeks pretty much summed up any story you could tell about anything. So the story itself really isn't important to me. That's just window dressing. What matters to me the most is character, and and not only memorable characters, but the way, the style that something is written in. And so there's certainly authors like uh, Charles Dickens who just mastered character, mastered style, mastered the art of prose. He was accessible to so many people of so many different levels and intellectual levels, educational levels. You know, when you look at people like that, I think it's very inspiring, Um, you, you know, for sure. So it's really the way the story is written because most stories have been told. You kind of... And always, as a writer, you can predict very easily what's going to happen. It almost ruins any movie that you ever watch. You always say, well, they would have never mentioned this, or this guy would have never came into this scene unless he was going to you know, die in the next scene. And you can always predict. Um, but it's, it's the way, the style that really draws me in, the immersion. Are you in control of your characters, or do they kind of take over as you're writing? Uh, do, they, do they surprise you, and have they ever gone off the rails and just like, taking over the plot 
<laughs> funny question. In hemispheres, absolutely. In my first novel, um, that happened all the time. Where especially with this um, character, Thalassa, who was basically um, kind of the full uh, arcana, kind of the um, the full archetype in literature, you know, a spontaneous, impulsive character. And that's what a spine. If you're writing an authentic, spontaneous, impulsive character, they should be they, they should be so spontaneous that you're not even um, that they're tricking you, that you're not even aware of it. They're jumping over your outline and they're making fun of your out- outline and mocking your outline. You know, if they are legitimately spontaneous and impulsive, a good example would be like maybe Harley Quinn and Batman. Well, so what is now? This is a weird, another weird one. What is your relationship with your characters? How do you feel about them? Because you know, a lot of the um, authors in in your field of writing um, always have sort of names for them, like their family. They're like kids. They're like there's things like that that I get from a lot of fantasy and sci-fi writers and that sort of thing so do you have that kind of relationship interesting i mean to some degree it's all like um parts of myself i mean in a way and it it is when you it is so immersive the writing process you can just it becomes your world it's almost like being in virtual reality when you're writing and so the characters do become very uh, real and uh you know you lament their decisions you lament the end of the writing process uh and you know it inspires you to write a sequel etc um you know character your relationship to your characters is interesting because it is a re- each one really represents an aspect of yourself and um i suppose that it, it depends upon how introspective one is and how how one knows themselves however i also um, you can also get in trouble with this to some degree I remember when my mother used to say that Stephen King must be a real sicko to write the way he does, you know, and, and that's not the and that's not the case. I mean, I mean, I imagine he's you know a very nice, gentle guy. There are a lot of singers like Steve Wilson that are very uh, write the most depressing mu- um, uh, music, but they're really um, you know very outgoing, happy people in real life. And I think that a lot of us, when we engage in the creative process, it is a, a, a catharsis. It is a merging with what Carl Jung called the shadow self, and it is uh, kind of getting out a lot of what is repressed. And, you know, and I think that you can take a character, and if you're really good at it, you can take another a character's perspective, and Stephen King can write someone who has totally different beliefs than he does. He could write a racist character reliably. Of course, that doesn't mean Stephen King's racist for doing so. It means he has enough empathy uh, to be able to, um, you know, convey that realistically. So, what 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 issues are you trying to work out in this book <laughs> of yourself? Uh, you know, I, I really, <laughs> I really like looking at <laughs> oh, of myself. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, it, it, I think that there's a conflict in me between how socially active I want to be and how much I want to support the system. Uh, when you're when you're young, you know, the youth are very ideal. I'm 42, uh, almost 42. And the youth are very idealistic, and when I was young, I was very idealistic about social change and the environment, and we're going to beat poverty, and we're going to beat cancer, and we're going to do this, this, and this. You know, the world's going to be this phenomenal place, and by 2000, everybody's going to have flying cars, and there'll be no poverty and no hunger, and et cetera. And although a lot of progress has been made in a lot of these areas, um, you know, there, you're, it's very easy to be idealistic as a child. It's equally easy to be a very cynical when you spend a few decades working for the system, you know, 80 hours a week, and then you see how slow progress is and how many times we take major steps backwards, um, you know, in society. Um, 
and, and that can be very cynical. And so to me, and there's this conflict between to what degree can I still retain a sort of youthful idealism, and how can I act that out? I mean, I, I certainly as a government employee, um, <laughs> it is very – I must be very cautious on how – you know, I cannot go start cyberpunk revolution in the streets or something. You know, <laughs> uh, I must be very cautious how I speak about you know, political issues, et cetera. Uh, because I have a buy-in to the system. I mean, I have a master's degree, and I'm, you know, employed, you know, I have a great job as an IT manager. And so, um, because of this, I have a buy-in to the system, and it's e- easy to forget the idealistic visions you had when you were young, or even the social problems that you acknowledged when you were younger. Once you kind of make it in life to some degree, it's easy to kind of forget uh, where you started. And so for me, writing about this and writing both a character like Severum, who's 69, and a character like um, Ash, who's about to turn 20, it helps me explore the generational differences and how they um, and how they go about society, or how they how they view you know the world and its problems. Well, do you feel the speed of innovation and technology? Do you, do you feel that that makes it harder to stay um, a step ahead of of uh, what's currently happening when you're when you're creating a story do you, do you find that there might be some uh overlap as as uh you're you're uh, kind of pushing off into the future with, with the story yeah it's, it's really interesting there's been a lot of research on the speed of technological growth and innovation and it is getting to the point where it is uncontrollable you you cannot possibly keep up with everything many of the classic cyberpunk authors like uh, bethke and rucker and all they worked at say mit mm-hmm. And uh, some still do. Um, and so they had an insider knowledge as to the technology that was coming down the pipeline 10 years ahead of time, you know, which helped them write, I think. Um, but to speed, there's so much uh, new inventions um, that it's impossible to keep up with them all. The other day, they came up with a underwater breathing apparatus that didn't require a scuba tank, basically using a cobalt, um, a specific uh, molecule of cobalt they created a uh, scuba gear that didn't require a scuba tank. It was just a um, basically a, a few grains of rock that you would put around a nose piece that would take oxygen out of the water and let you breathe water uh, almost wow. like a fish. And so, you know, there are so many huge inventions like this, or um, or even even something as simple as wireless power, being able to plug your phone into a uh, power outlet wirelessly as long as you have a, a direct line of sight with it. You know, inventions that are being that are coming up with all the time in medicine, we've learned more in the past twenty years than we have in the past twenty thousand years about medicine and the human brain and the body, and nobody can keep up with all this information. And also with social issues, it's impossible to keep up with all the issues. You know, here's save the whales, here's save this, save that. I say it'd be great to save the dolphins, save the polar bears. It'd be great to grow more trees in the rainforest and prevent deforestation. You know, what? how do I even decide which issues to focus on? And so for me as a writer, I focus on kind of cultural issues. I say, well, what, what are the underlying problems here um, that technology is trying to solve? And what are the underlying problems that all these social movements are trying to solve? And ultimately, a lot of that goes down to controlling our environment, and looking to, uh, I, I guess the judgmental way uh, to say it is looking to exploit the environment for our economic gain to the highest extent possible. We can see this as in a species just being extremely efficient and productive and, you know, uh, good hard workers to drive the economy. But you can also see it as um, something that will lead to the inevitable destruction of the planet 
if we're not careful and cautious how we go about things. But, yeah, there's information hitting us all over the place. But Alan and Dave, you know, what's interesting is that when you look at the Internet and what, you know, what is most of the data on the Internet, all of this information, most of it, 80% of it is pornography, to be honest. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, we have so much information coming in. Uh, but when you look at people's social media feeds and their, you know, the constant emojis, likes, the stories of what people had for dinner, how much of this is really meaningful information? How much of it is just overwhelming us and, you know, frivolous and even distracting us from the bigger social issues um, or spiritual growth that we could have in life? Yeah. So get off the computer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Set, you know, set boundaries, set boundaries, you know, an hour a day, you know, or two hours a day versus, say, the average child who's, who's doing five to six hours a day. Well, it's going to be tough when you incorporate it in your class, you know, like when they're using laptops at school. Of course. Right? It gets, you know, how do you write, how do you write an evil character? How do you get in the head of someone that's really bad or out to do wrong to people? You know, those characters that are shades of gray are the most interesting. Um Characters who are have strong convictions, uh, they have blindsided convictions. They they have kind of like a black and white style of thinking, but they also have believe that they're they, they may even believe they're doing well, good though, and they're not completely bad in and of themselves. Um, an example is, uh, let's see, so like uh, a character that's a shade of gray. In in inertia, there's a character Kuptos, uh, Eduardo Kuptos, and. Um, and his last name refers to like culpa, like culpa and yada, like sin. Um, and he he lost his family uh, due to some uh, floods that were going on that were caused by Severum when he was rotating the planet uh, to basically change the uh, play of light across the planet. And so because he lost his children to this guy, um, this guy, uh, Severum and his family become nemesises to the antagonist, Eduardo Kuptos. And so he's driven by his kind of like sorrow at losing his family during the floods and all. And that drives him to commit a lot of evil acts and evil acts against Severum's family for revenge, for vengeance. You know, so here's a man with strong family values, and that's great. But, you know, it's, it's venerable, it's honorable. But then to have somebody uh, go through loss and then create a sort of vengeful mindset out of that. That's where evil comes from. That's how you create a convincing antagonist. They have, you know, it's, everybody has loss in life, but, you know, are your characters dealing with loss in a way that's honorable and that's building them up and, be, and building their spiritual or internal growth? Or are they dealing with loss in another way through denial, distraction, greed, um, uh, sublimation, and all the ego's defense mechanisms and are they acting out, you know, aggressively, um, or are they self-harming even in ways? You know, so how we deal with loss and grief, that's really the kind of a, the test or measure of a man and, or woman. And it's really where some of the most interesting characters come out of. They come out of that how, place of how are they handling their sorrows. So how did you decide to get into writing? Like what led you down this road? I was um, dissatisfied with a lot of writing I was reading. Every now and then I would read a phenomenal book like Neuromancer or Pattern Recognition by Gibson or Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson or the classic sci-fi books I mentioned. Every now and then I would read something like that. But then there was a lot of just kind of fluff books, uh, books that really uh, they were following a formula. And they, they were so formulaic and so predictable that I, I realized they weren't really – at the end of it, I didn't feel like I had learned anything. And so I kind of wanted to write in a way that, 
that somebody would feel like they learned something at the end of it. Some people have considered uh, my science fiction to be like philosophical science fiction or, you know, philosophy or whatever they call it. Um, and so I like that. And so incorporating a lot of, I found an opportunity to incorporate the philosophy that I was studying into literature, uh, such as Hegel. Um, Hegel studied the, uh, studied the conflict and dialectics of society and, um, and basically, you know, all the conflict. Or, um, or you know, other, um, or you know, different spiritual mindsets, etc. And when it comes to something like uh, spirituality, it's interesting because early on, I wrote, you know, very violently. You know, there was preemptive violence. There was a lot of violence. And over time, I realized that uh, this this probably could have an impact on some people, uh, especially if they were already kind of on the edge. And so I decreased the violence in my writing as I went because I realized this wasn't really what I set out to do. It wasn't really the message that I wanted to uh, get across. Um, and, and so I changed it more to like, uh, like, in a, like in inertia, if there's violence, it's uh, defensive. It's like a last resort sort of thing. So I've tried to reflect more and more values um, in, in, the, in the literature because for some people, some people believe we're instinctively born with values of a certain type, and that's probably true to a degree. But a lot of our values come from the media that we're exposed to, and they kind of unconsciously uh, uh, we assimilate to it. Uh, and it, and so you do have to be careful if, you know, thousands of people are reading your books or 10,000 or whatever. You do have to be careful about the values that you're imparting to society. And so I think now with inertia, I've gotten back onto my initial track of um, you know trying to promote more positive values. Wow. So, but but is there is there a particular incident or something that sparked that um, to to write? You know. Yeah, I think that it, it was just yeah. I have an overflowing amount of thoughts. So um, you know, I am ninety five percent introverted. I tend to measure everything. You know, um, ninety five. So. I have a very high level of base level of cortical arousal, meaning that I have an overwhelming flood of thoughts at any given time. And it's it's completely overstimulating and it can make my entire mind crash like a computer that's been given too much um, that, you know, your computer freezes up because it's performing too many calculations. So I had to find a valve, a safety release valve for all this pressure inside, you know, sort of like an outlet. And you know, writing is an outlet that's it's free. It's accessible to virtually anyone, you know, in the world, really. And it, it's something that, it, whether you do it good or whether you do it bad, whether you have an have an audience or whether it's just you doing it, it still save, serves that same uh, cathartic purpose of being able to express yourself and have a safety release valve where you can just kind of turn it, write a few pages. And oftentimes I felt better. Um, I felt more, um, even if I'm writing dystopian, it made me feel more positive, you know, um, to be able to get out that kind of uh, mindset and then be able to kind of look at, okay, here's the worst case scenario world that I created where everything horrible is happening. My life doesn't look too bad by comparison. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what, so what do you hope people get out of your books? What is it you're looking for? I hope that they just question, um, you know, everything that they've assumed and everything they've been uh, taught and that they just question. I, I would hope that every conservative becomes a liberal after reading my book and that every liberal becomes a conservative. I would hope that every religious person becomes an atheist and every atheist becomes a Christian. You know, I would, I would just hope that people would, would be so inspired that they would start seeing the world from a different person's perspective. 
you know, not converting, but I'm being extreme, but at least be able to empathize with people who have different uh, mindsets. And so like in my first novel, Hemispheres, I have, you know, characters with drastically different views on things. And in the end, they have to work together. Despite all the fighting and conflict, they have to unify themselves for a greater cause because they had every group we look at in society, uh, you know, whether it's the atheist and the Christian or the conservative and the liberal has most of their values are pretty much the same when you look down at it. Yeah, there's a few major differences on the surface, but most of us just want to, you know, we want to have our needs fulfilled. We want to have enough food, shelter. We want to have love. We want to have security. We don't want to have to be afraid. We want to um, be able to have, to learn things and to excel as individuals and to be treated with kindness and respect. You know, the basic human needs are the same across culture and they're the same across time. And I hope that, you know, my novels are able to emphasize the kind of shared humanity that we all have, uh, you know, and that that's more important in these minor ideological differences on the surface. What do you like best about writing? It's it's fascinating to create a world that's that's never been. When you know when you can set a uh, book in any society you want, it becomes a a playground for you. Uh, you can play around with different modes of social organization, like Huxley does in Island, the classic book from 100 years ago. You can play around with um you know different structures and, and governments and religions. You can create religions and mystic cults and things like I did in Hemispheres. And you can, you know, you can create these things and draw, you know, and, and, and basically kind of play around with, you know, how can you take a dozen different cultures and take elements of each and put them together and create something new to kind of do social experiments with nobody getting hurt. And so that's a lot of fun to see how it, how it plays out. And I think by doing so, you learn a lot about your own society and the values of the culture you're born into. What kind of um, writers do you like? Other, maybe other than science fiction world, I mean, I, like what is yeah. there some other types of writers okay. you go into? Sure, I love Victorian writing. I mean, I absolutely love you know, a lot. Like my my prose is very metaphorical, especially in hemispheres. It's you know a lot of poetic metaphor throughout because I love the Victorian writers. Um, everybody from Go to the Wordsworth to Tennyson to you know all of them are just phenomenal to me. Um, and in in addition, I. I Anyone who can master the art of the short story fascinates me. Uh, Franz Kafka is a great example uh, with his Penal Colony, which was very inspirational to me. And um, and there's art, writers um, like Catherine Valente and others who are very metaphorical. You know, I, I like a lot of metaphor in my pro, in, in the prose that I read. I think that makes a um, for me that that makes a big difference. It really there is no outlet for poetry except for prose. You know, the poetry, poetry books are almost never published. A bookstore like Barnes & Noble will have probably 100,000 books in it, and maybe 10 are poetry or 20 are poetry. So, you know, being able to have prose that's highly poetic is something that I love. And that's why, I, um, you know, authors like, uh, you know, authors like Charles Dickinson is just, you know, where you have extended metaphors that are going throughout the book. Or uh, Gibson and Neuromancer with some of his extended metaphors and whatnot. Um, you know, this is very interesting to me. So, so what does your writing process day look like? I mean, you you mentioned how you do have a a day job, so to speak, and all that. How is it that you fit time in? And and are you the type of writer that can go? Well, there's nobody home. I'm not working tonight, six to ten, and sit down and write. Or it, does there have to be a, an element of of mood? 
or feeling that that uh, strikes you before you write? Yeah, there has uh, you know there has to be a feeling, but there also has to be the time. And my time comes in little ten minute chunks. So I tend to create a bunch of ideas, you know, every day. When I have an idea, I write it down on a little notepad or something. And then at the end of the week, I'll kind of gather them all together when the time is right. But honestly. Um, even though I have two publicists and two traditional model publishers behind me, 90% of the process for me is still, you know, marketing. You know, rather than um, even with all the support from the industry, it's still, you know, marketing and appearing at, at you know, conferences and whatnot. And so the writing is one of the things that's really – it's almost like I think I need to set aside the entire – next year to just focus on writing and not get involved in the marketing aspects because I do a lot of different things uh, to support the genre, such as uh, one of the things we do is Cyberpunk Day every year. Uh, every day, every year um, in November, we gather uh, a bunch of authors together and we do um, we basically try to merge the indie uh, media community, Cyberpunk Media creators to merge them together with the general audience so that, um, so that they can both meet and to create a community of people who love dystopian uh, fiction and media. And, you know, running a day like that and, you know, with a group is, you know, it takes a good amount of time. And likewise, a lot of the other activities we do uh, on the marketing side takes a tremendous amount of time away from the writing. When I look, and then even when after you write a book, the editing process, you're, you're reading that book uh, over and over and over. You're editing it a dozen times over and over. And, you know, it takes literally hundreds, sometimes a couple thousand hours to do. And so of the overall process, 5% of the process is actually the creative writing side. The rest is more like running a business. And so you have, so those little 10 minute periods of time, yeah, I, I try to steal those as often as I can throughout the day. Um, but there's, you know, there, there's just never enough time for the artist. No, no. Do, do things like, um, you know, thing uh, outside pressures like you know, for instance, the pandemic and all the craziness around the world and and stuff going on. Does that affect you in your writing, or d d does it perhaps lead you in a more positive, lighted direction when you write, or does it make it darker? You know, it does affect me. Uh, one of the things our publisher, Rock Hill Publishing, did is we put together a COVID anthology of short stories, um, you know, uh, that were basically inspired by COVID. And a lot of these stories, you know, they were darker stories a lot. You know, they had optimistic messages, but they you know, represented the fear of that time. Um, and we never ended up publishing the anthology because it, it just wasn't the right time for it. Uh, we thought that COVID would be something that was maybe a year or maybe two years, and then we would just get over it and society would go back to normal. But the impact that COVID has had on the economy, on the supply chain, on the job market, on the great resignation, on uh, human health, and over you know fears and public gatherings, over telework, it has really touched so many aspects of the way we do business that um, that yeah we realized that it wasn't really time to release an, a COVID anthology at that time. Uh, because it, it, it can be controversial. It, for some reason, uh, a health issue has become politicized, which is odd. And um, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of odd. But, um, yeah. It, but, but yeah, essentially, yeah, uh, that you can't help. You can't be in a vacuum. I mean, all that feeds into the way you're feeling when you write. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I just wonder if it, if it gets in and you end up using that to – to create a, a a brighter story in a sense, or does it 
actually does the the frustration or upset get into it and it becomes more a little bit yeah. more sinister even yeah i i um interviewed dr benjamin menadu um an australian social psychologist about this about uh covid and science fiction and dr menadu stated that um stories that were written about covid actually ended up having a very positive impact on society because it helped people prepare for the worst it helped people feel more empowered um, here in fiction and science fiction, people could see um, plagues and viruses playing out and how the, how the protagonist, um, you know, basically uh, reacted to them and eventually overcame the unstoppable odds of nature. And a lot of people after reading uh, COVID-related fiction felt a lot more positive about humans' ability to get through this, felt more optimistic. Uh, they didn't feel as fearful, and it had an effect on their mindset. And so that is an example where, um, you know, where science fiction is uh, like when, when COVID happened, what, the first thing that came to my mind, it was Dustin Hoffman in, in the movie. What's it start? It starts with uh, what was it? Yeah. Uh, Outbreak. Outbreak. And Dustin, I was saying I was picturing uh, Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak in, in his suit, you know, with the helmet <laughs> on, you know, trying to overcome this virus. And he was kind of my hero that I had in my mind when I was thinking about COVID. Um, so I was relating to, you know, something to sci-fi media. And I was thinking to myself, this guy got through it. You know, I can get through it. Well, of course. <laughs> Dustin can do it. Anybody can do it. <laughs> you know. Um, no, it's just – yeah, one thing that was surprising in uh, – maybe it's not so much affected in your type of writing, but is um, the way people reacted in public towards things, you know, like the vaccine and toward the uh, masking and all this sort of – like the behaviors of a lot of the people, adults – um, I think was unusual. It was surprising to me. And being that I write nonfiction, um, if I wrote characters like how I've seen a lot of people in the last few years, I, I, before the pandemic came, I, people would probably think I'm unrealistic, you know? Yes. And so that's, yes. I don't know how that changes your perspective on when you write characters because you're completely fictional. So you're creating characters, but you have to make them real like, you know, they have to be believable. People want to, uh, connect with your characters. Uh, when I'm writing, uh, about a murderer and stuff that has really done it, I don't have a lot of choice over this person you know they are what they are and they did what mm. they did but you have complete freedom now so i just wonder if that'll change your perspective um by some of the surprising behaviors of humans yeah i mean probably not the reason is because i think that so many of our characters and public figures have become almost satirical and unbelievable i think that say uh 10 years ago if i were to write a character in a book uh that was like that was a president who was like Donald Trump and made these sorts of comments, um, you know, without valuing, without being pro or anti-Trump for the sake of the conversation. I think that if I were to write a character like that, he would be so extreme that most people would view it as satire and unrealistic. I think that there are a lot of extreme personalities out there today that people wouldn't believe if you put them in a book. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, you just don't know which way to go. You know, in a way, it's yeah, kinda, yeah, it's uh, uncharted territory. Anyway, 
Well, indeed, indeed. And now let's talk about how people get a hold of you. Um, now, do you do uh, social media? Do you have social media accounts with different places? Do you have a website? Do you um, um, go to uh, strip bars? Like, what? How do people get a hold of you? <laughs> no, no. Uh, so the uh, the best way is uh, MarkEverglade.com. That's Everglade singular, MarkEverglade.com. I have about over 100 uh, cyberpunk books that I review on there from different authors. I have my work listed on the site. Somebody, if you sign up for the mailing list, I'll send you a free book of short stories, for instance, in the cyberpunk genre. And, you know, articles and blogs, both on the writing process, you know, words not to use when you're writing, uh, how to quarry, um, you know, if you're an author. And likewise, a lot of, um, you know, uh, cyberpunk book reviews and scholarly articles calls one dystopian literature that's markeverglade.com and and that's probably the best way to reach me okay sounds good now we'll have that posted up there with your new book uh inertia and uh you know uh, wish you the best of luck so it's been it's been great having you here um our guest mark everglade thanks for being here thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure dave and al thank you thanks mark You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.